0: Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kahnema
1: and Dr. Jacinta Delhaize. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies.
0: Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make.
1: Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies.
0: Hello, and welcome to our ninth episode. Mm,
1: Yes, episode nine. Yay, (laughs) nearly double digits. (laughs) Uh, Part two of our uh, mini-series on simulations.
0: Yes, so you may remember with episode eight, we spoke to Professor Ramil Davé about uh, his work in simulations and his time here in South Africa. And uh, today we will be joined by Ramil's PhD student, uh, Nicole Thomas, who also works in simulations and on this, the the Simba simulations, which she'll explain uh, more about. But basically they are including uh, black hole feedback, so feedback from the, the central black hole at the, the center of these galaxies uh, and how that affects the galaxies and how they are evolving. And she will be joining us via Skype. Uh, Nicole is currently visiting Ramil at the Royal Observatory Edinburgh.
1: Right, and then we're going to hear from Dr. Nathan Deck, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cape Town. And he also works on simulations, um, but simulations of uh, individual galaxies. And we're going to hear about um, the differences in those two styles of simulations and how we make mock universes.
0: Great. So, Nicole? Yeah, let's
1: hear from <laughs> Nicole. Hi Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Cosmic Savannah. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and where you studied?
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm Nicole Thomas. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of the Western Cape. Uh, I'm originally from Cape Town. Uh, I grew up mostly in Baalville South, and I went to Castle High School in Baalville South. I then went to UWC to do an undergrad in physics, uh, which I completed in 2014. I then continued to do uh, an honours and a master's degree with the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program based at uh, the University of Cape Town. I then returned to UWC to complete my master's dissertation with Ramil Davé using the Mufasa simulations to study how galaxies cluster, essentially, uh, and yeah, now I'm, as I say, I'm in my second year of PhD still at University of the Western Cape, still working with the middle using the now Simba simulations to understand how black holes correlate with their host galaxies
1: um, and how this evolves with time. So we spoke to Ramil in the previous episode and he mentioned that you were doing your PhD on work related to his suite of simulations. So just to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about why galaxy simulations are important?
2: They're not important such that they are only useful on their own. They, we do still need observations uh, to validate these simulations. So there's a lot of things in observations that we cannot observe uh, which is where simulations come in to sort of fill in those missing gaps. Um So these simulations basically make use of everything we know and understand about galaxies from observations along with all the other physics and cosmology and so on. And once we run these simulations, we hope that they look somewhat similar to what we see observationally. Uh, and then by combining these simulations with the observations, we can sort of deduce and put constraints on the physical mechanisms that govern uh, the physical processes within galaxy formation and evolution. You said you used the Mufasa simulation. What is that? So the Mufasa simulations was the original suite of simulations that we used. So those are basically galaxy evolution simulations where the primary goal is to reproduce a viable um population representative of what we see in the universe today. Uh, Mufasa unfortunately did not have any black hole physics which we've more recently seen is quite important in galaxy evolution so we now have the Simba simulations which are the successor essentially to Mufasa and that has all the same Mufasa physics but a couple of tweaks here and there Uh, But also includes two modes of black hole
1: accretion, black hole growth, and uh, black hole feedback as well. I think uh, Simba and Mufasa are really great names. I I guess they're acronyms. Do you know what they stand for?
2: (laughs) Um, I'm not, I still don't know what Mufasa (laughs) stands for. uh, But Simba, uh, you could say, stands for
1: Simulations with Black Hole Accretion. Okay, so that's the one you're working on mainly. And so what is black hole accretion and what role does it play in the life cycle of a galaxy? Uh, So basically black hole accretion is just a
2: very fancy way of saying black hole growth. So basically uh, in most galaxies at the centre you have a supermassive black hole and a lot of the gas and dust and stuff in the innermost regions around the black hole then gets consumed by it. Uh, And when this happens the central regions of the galaxy heats up quite a bit, and there's a lot of supporting observational evidence that shows that when this black hole is accreting matter, it also tells you a lot about the galaxy that it's inside of. So there's a lot of observational evidence that suggests that the nature of the black hole depends a lot on the nature of its host galaxy and vice versa. Um... So we can tell a lot about how these things are co-evolving, if they are co-evolving. Um, and also when these black holes are heating, they're typically termed active uh, or active galactic nuclei. And there's a lot of evidence also that suggests that these are the things that might be quenching galaxies and causing them to lose all this star formation, using up their cold gas and we, we do see a lot of, um, representative evidence that suggests that whatever's going, whatever is going on with the supermassive black hole results in some change or, um, tells you a lot about the population of galaxies that those types of black holes are part of. Um, so that is, that is what I'm trying to look at with the simulations is whether we do see the sort of effect, um, and also try to make predictions for what observers should uh, see if they can do deeper observations.
0: So by including this black hole accretion and the resultant feedback into your simulation, you can basically get more realistic galaxies forming?
2: Yeah, so that's what we hope to do. Um, We do try to be as realistic with our uh, feedback and accretion models, um, and we do see quite a good... Uh, representative um, set of galaxies that we observe so we've we've done of we've gotten a few results that support this observational evidence that suggests that uh, different properties of black holes do correlate with different properties of galaxies and that's a, a, a very good and very um, motivational uh, result so far.
0: So we feel like we're understanding the physics of how these black holes are interacting with their galaxies?
2: Yeah, I I think we're getting there. Um, It's still very uncertain uh, with regards to the physics that uh, occurs during these things because the unfortunate thing also when trying to compare to observations is that you have a discrepancy in the thing that you're measuring. So observers typically see light um, and they can then from that light determine what's going on with the black hole um whereas and also try to determine how that black hole is accreting and what it's doing whereas we come from the other side and we see okay this is what our black hole is doing what would that look like um in this wavelength of light or how would that look or how would that change the morphology given some accretion rate or some mass of the black hole Um, so there is a little uncertainty and a little bit of blurred
1: lines but we, we try and hope for the best. So once you've found a result with your simulated data, how do you then compare that with your observed data?
2: Um, so like I said, uh, it also depends on what we're trying to compare. So typically um, observers would measure uh, some light coming from the, um, the galaxy or the innermost regions of the galaxy where the supermassive black hole is. And we would then look at the actual property of the black hole. Um, so once the observers have the light, they can then estimate via uh, some black hole galaxy scaling relation what the mass or accretion rates of the black hole is. And once we have that, we can then overlay our results and see if they do agree with each other. Uh, so far, we've we've gotten some very good results that do show uh, observational support for our results. Um, things do get a little bit tricky when you're trying to compare or to go from our creation rates to what we expect the black hole to look like in a certain wavelength. Uh, things get a little bit tricky there but there are still a little uncertainties when trying to go from one property to another property.
0: Just on the simulations, So these are simulation boxes with many, many galaxies in them, I assume?
2: Yes, they are.
0: And how big is a box and how many galaxies are you simulating?
2: So the thing about simulations as well is that there's a trade-off between how much you can simulate and the resolution that you get out from the simulation. So typically we look at boxes between uh, different sizes of about Tw- uh, 25 megaparsec up to 100 megaparsec per side so um, for the 100 megaparsec box you're looking at resolved galaxies um, of a number of a few thousand so that the larger your box goes you really want to focus more on your number statistics as opposed to the smaller boxes where you have maybe a bit more resolution you get fewer number statistics and a bit more dispersion within your results so, when you say a box, what exactly does that mean? So, it's about you could call it a essentially a time stamp. So, these simulations are run from really high resolution, and at each time step, it outputs essentially a box at that time step. Uh, so that then will include all of your galaxies and everything at that particular time, and this is output in what we call a snapshot. Uh, So that is a box of however large um, with all of the the galaxies and things, as I mentioned.
0: So you essentially have a cube of the universe, uh, of a small sample of the universe, with thousands of galaxies in it. And the Simba simulations, are they a similar size and resolution? Uh,
2: So yes, so compared to the Mufasa uh, simulations, yes, they are. They are are the same resolution, uh, the same size. So we look at, as I say, a 100 megaparsec box. Um, So these boxes include dark matter, um, stars, gas, uh, dust, and all of those sort of things. Um, And you were typically able to resolve galaxies down to stellar masses of about are half times 10 to the 8 solar masses. Um, so our resolution is not we don't get down to the very small scales, but we, we get a good sample of high mass galaxies.
0: Great. I mean, I, I know from personal experience that doing these sorts of simulations involves a lot of coding and using big supercomputers. How have you found the programming side of this work?
2: I, I'd rather enjoy it. Um, I, I think it might be the most fun part of my research. Um, So, I I mean, I love solving puzzles and uh, trying to put code together and things like that. So I quite enjoy it. I mean, the the research itself is pretty cool too. Um, But, yeah, I've I've always quite enjoyed trying to model things, and I sort of – I think I fell in love with simulations the first time I ever – simulated a bouncing ball in my second year <laughs> undergrad Python, And I, I just thought it was so cool that you could actually see how all of these different physics is actually contributing to a moving object. So, yes, yeah, so I, I think it's really cool and
1: I really enjoy it. It's kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Exactly.
2: And who doesn't love a big jigsaw puzzle?
1: <laughs> and uh, what are the particular programming languages that you
2: use? So I primarily use... Python. Um, a lot of our simulation code is written in C, C++, etc. Um,
1: but I try to stick to the Python stuff. And I guess during your PhD so far, you've had the chance to spend some time at some big international research institutions. Um, for example, where you are now at the Royal Observatory Edinburgh, um, and that's why we're joining you via Skype. How have you found that experience, and where have you been? Um, yes, yeah, so I've, I've been a few places.
2: It's been uh, incredibly daunting, uh, but it's been a very awesome experience. So I've been privileged to be able to travel to places like the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics in Munich. I've been to Oxford for a year, which was awesome. Um, and now I am at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, uh, visiting Remiel that year for a couple of months. So, yeah, it's it's been really cool in the sense that people are really nice, people are very supportive, and I've, I've been quite productive. Uh, I guess uh, being away from home and not having as many distractions helps. Um, but, yeah, it's I've, I've been very lucky. I don't think it's a very common thing for students to be able to travel as much as I have during this time. Of course, there are quite a few sacrifices involved with it, but it's, it's worth it.
1: And do you have any advice for other people, particularly other South African or African students who are interested in studying astronomy? Um, So advice is, I feel like, such a
2: strong word because I feel like everyone comes from a different background. Everyone deals with stresses and things differently. Uh, But I know what I would tell a very young, naive Nicole that decided this was a good idea it's just basically that, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. Uh, some days you'll feel like you know exactly what you're doing and you actually understand the work that you're doing. Just for that to be crushed by a simple question or a bug in your code or something stupid that isn't even relevant. And some days it's going to be really boring. (laughs) But when you get that result and, or you finally finish that paper and submit that paper and people are actually interested in what you're doing, or even if you just understand a new concept that you weren't able to grasp before, then it, then it becomes worth it. And those are the things to really look forward to.
1: Yeah, I think we've all felt something similar to that, right, Dan?
0: <laughs> yeah, the imposter syndrome is real.
1: Yeah, Oh, yeah, that's, that's real.
0: <laughs> that's great, Nicole. Thank you very much for speaking with us.
1: Yeah, and for taking the time and enjoy the rest of your stay in Scotland. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, and keep up the good work.
1: Thanks, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> So that was really great of Nicole to uh, join us all the way from Scotland. Um, I really liked uh, that she mentioned how much she loves computer coding. Um, and I guess uh, it turns out that I do too. Um, I, I, really avoided it for a long time, even though I got advice from my university professors that I should try and do more computer science, uh, units and topics. Um, I just didn't think it was for me for some reason, but then eventually during my PhD, I kind of, I had to learn, uh, programming, Python programming, and it turns out I really like it. Um, like I said, it was, a like a jigsaw puzzle, uh, that you have to solve and it's a great game and, uh, you can do so many cool things with it. And I guess I use it, uh, in a, in a different way to manipulate my data sets and to do some mathematical analysis. But I guess that's a little different from from the way you use it for your simulations, right, Dan?
0: Yeah, I think the simulations is kind of even more intoxicating because <laughs> you're building little mini-universes in yeah. a box. And, you, do you
1: feel like a, almost like a god in some way, like a building bit. a universe? Uh, yeah, you know, you get,
0: you get to tweak one or two things <laughs> and you get to change everything, <laughs> and how it's all formed and evolved. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a a very powerful tool and I, I've loved, it's always been a, a, a great part of my, my work, the coding. Uh, so next we'll, we'll be joined by Dr. Nathan Degg, who is a postdoc at the University of Cape Town, and uh, he also <laughs> obviously enjoys his coding. Uh, he's recently published a paper with a, a new code that he's uh, released publicly, uh, which builds individual galaxies so rather than building these boxes that we were talking about with nicole with thousands of galaxies in them he's looking at a single or uh, couples of galaxies uh, and uh, trying to build them in in a lot of detail so we'll uh, chat to nathan
1: Welcome, Nathan. How are you doing today?
3: Um, magical, and how are you?
1: <laughs> I'm good, thanks. <laughs> how are you, Dan?
3: <laughs> I'm good, thank you. <laughs>
1: um, Nathan, just uh, can you tell us a bit, bit about yourself?
3: Okay, so my name's Nathan Degg. Uh I'm from Canada. You might be able to tell by my lack of an accent, uh, or what I believe is a lack of an accent. Everyone <laughs> I meet has an accent. It's the same way you don't have an accent, everyone else you meet has an accent. <laughs> uh, so I grew up in Canada. I did my PhD, all my studies in canada and then i came here for my first postdoc working at uct so we were just chatting with uh,
0: nicole she works on cosmological simulations so large boxes of galaxies uh, with thousands of galaxies in them and trying to reproduce individual realistic looking galaxies uh, you also work on on simulations of galaxies can you tell us a little bit about your work
3: yeah so i work on simulations of galaxies but very different from nicole's one of the things that i do is i do tailored simulations as opposed to cosmological simulations so with your cosmological simulation you have this giant box you're talking about the universe you're zooming might be zooming in and this sort of thing but you don't have a uh, Huge amount of control on what you get out you have thousands of galaxies and you can look at and go Okay, this galaxy looks like this thing. This one looks like this other thing But if I want to say I definitely want to have a galaxy which is this big with uh, the various different components that galaxies have They usually have bulges discs dark matter halos if I say I want to have this much disc this much bulge this much dark matter halo It's hard to always find that inside the cosmological simulation. So in a tailored simulation, you just build the thing to look like that, what you want it to be.
1: So in this tailored simulation, we're not trying to focus on many hundreds or thousands of galaxies. We're trying to focus on one galaxy.
3: One, maybe two if you want maybe to ha- right. throw them at each other because everyone loves throwing galaxies together. It's sure. a lot of fun. <laughs>
1: Seeing what, what chaos ensues, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> okay, so you want to look at these individual galaxies because you want to study the actual different components of those galaxies. So you mentioned that there's there's a few components. Could you just describe yeah. in more detail what they okay, are? Okay, so
3: when we look at most galaxies... Uh, You can generally break them up into different components. Uh, There's elliptical galaxies, which are giant balls of stars. And there are disk galaxies, like your beautiful spirals that whenever you look at a picture of a galaxy, you see this amazing looking spiral thing, because that's the one that just looks the best. Inside spiral galaxies, typically you have a central bulge, so sort of a ball of stars, usually a bit older. Then you have a disk. Uh, well, actually, you can have a few disk components. So this is sort of a large Frisbee-like thing full of stars and gas. In our galaxy, in the Milky Way, we actually have at least, depending on how you count it, because there are some scientists who are counting things a little bit differently. But typically, we would say there is a thin disk, which is thinner than the thick disk. We're really clever with naming, th- naming things <laughs> in astronomy. Uh, the thick disk has older stars, and it is... Thicker than the thin disk. Um,
1: So, by thicker, you mean it it extends uh, more above and below the plane of the galaxy. Exactly.
3: And it has a few different properties. So, the thin disk and thick disk have slightly different. In astronomy, we would use the term scale length, but one way of thinking of it is they're just longer. Uh, One's bigger, it goes out further than the other one. And they move a little bit differently. One is very much circular motions, and the other one has slightly more random motions thrown into the. They both move on circular orbits, but in those circular orbits, both of them have some random motions thrown in, and the thickness just has more of those random motions.
0: And then um, you mentioned the dark matter halo too.
3: Yes. So around every galaxy, and we believe it's pretty much every galaxy with a couple of very recent exceptions from a couple of papers. And there's all the stars, all the gas makes up a little portion of the whole thing. Most of the mass is in this giant ball of dark matter that we don't know what it looks like. We just know it's there gravitationally. And so this is one of those things that People in astronomy love to study because we're like, we really should know more about this dark matter that we can't see.
1: And, and why is it important to accurately model all of these different components?
3: So it's important for a variety of reasons. Um, one, it's important to model it accurately because knowing what things look like is always a good idea. Uh, I've always been interested in the Milky Way. So knowing what the extent of the Milky Way is would be nice because we live in it. But on a further sort of way of thinking about it, in our galaxy, in any galaxy, the amount of, say, the disk to the amount of dark matter changes how the thing will evolve. If you have only a little bit of disk relative to the dark matter, you might not form a bar or spiral structure. If you have a lot of disk relative to the dark matter, you'll probably form a bar. It just happens that disks will naturally form these bar-like things. And when we look at real galaxies, at least half of them have bar-like structures.
0: So with the, the simulations you're running, um, you mentioned that you you basically are setting these tailor-made simulations up. And then I assume once you've created this, all these various components, you've laid them out in some way which we think looks like a, a realistic galaxy, then what do you do with it?
3: Well, there's a few things that you can do. Usually, you put it into your simulation software and uh, let it run, let it evolve, and see what happens. In terms of the science that you can do, there's actually a huge amount uh, with these. One thing that you can do is you can go and try to make real-looking galaxies. And when I say real, not just real as in this matches the general galaxy idea, but to go, I want to make an Andromeda, I want to make a Milky Way, I want to make an NGC 1300 or IC 10 or what have you, you can look and try to make that specific galaxy. And you just make a whole bunch of different models and see which ones come out the best looking that matches as many different types of observations of the galaxy that you have.
1: And why do we want to do that? What do we get out
3: of it? Well, again, we get to figure out what the galaxy looks like. We get to figure out what's going on inside the galaxy. And in a lot of ways, when we look at what goes wrong, we actually learn more. Uh, I've heard someone say, you know, the goal of a simulation is not to get everything right. It's to find an interesting thing that doesn't match, because then you can learn something more about the physics. So when you're looking at individual galaxies, you can do all these matchings, but you can also start looking at when you have just a couple galaxies. With these tailored simulations, you can throw the galaxies at each other and do look at interactions on what are the most dominant forces of physics going on? Does it matter how close the things get? Does it matter how fast they interact? With spiral galaxies where there's rotation, does the direction of the rotation matter? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, it does for a lot of times. Uh, so you want to get as close as you can because and you want to find out also where you go wrong, because where you go wrong tells you about the physics that you're missing and how to inform the next set of simulations to do a little bit better. And then you can find a new spot where they break.
0: On that note, you've just uh, published a a new paper uh, with these simulations. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did in this and and what the paper is about?
3: Yeah, so I published a new paper on this uh, new version of a code called Galactics, which stands for Galaxy Initial Conditions, because again, astronomers are great with names. (laughs) Um, So this code lets you make these tailored simulations and It lets you uh, create your individual galaxies with all the different components that I talked about of a thin disk, a thick disk, a bulge, a gas disk, and a dark matter halo. Most other codes prior to this, you wouldn't necessarily have a gas disk built in because it turns out building a galaxy in equilibrium with a gas disk is kinda hard. So this is one of the few tools that lets you do this. And it's been very useful. What do you mean by galaxy in equilibrium? So I mean, if you just imagine throwing down a whole bunch of stars or a whole bunch of just particles and put it under galaxy, uh, put it under gravity, sorry, it's a galaxy under gravity, mm-hmm. but you don't know how fast they're moving or anything and just plop them down, they're all going to fall together because of gravity. If you start giving them velocities and you don't have any balance on the... If you don't carefully match the velocities to the gravitational force, they're just going to go fly all over the place and either collapse back down or explode. And since galaxies don't really explode, (laughs) probably not the best way of doing it. So, it's difficult when I say building something in equilibrium. I mean to very carefully balance all your forces so that the thing is neither exploding or collapsing but is just evolving as a real galaxy would under the influence of g- gravity and various other physics that you might put in
0: it's just i guess it's just quite a complex uh, it, concept it, uh, to 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 try and you know, we, we want to learn how those things are evolving over time, but in order to get it going in the first place, we, we really need to understand where everything is yeah. and how it's moving.
3: Yeah, it's one of these things where the cosmological simulations, which are amazing and are in many ways the best uh, sort of for the real physics and that their initial conditions, how you start them off is really simple for the most part. You go, I've got a box of stuff. There's a few random fluctuations, then let's let it go. But then you put in a lot more complicated physics. What I'm doing is I'm going, okay, I want to make a specific thing. It turns out it's really hard to build the thing initially. And even though that it's a toy model and in some ways building the toy model is harder than the cosmological simulation, at least for the initial conditions. But once you let it evolve, the cosmological simulation rapidly becomes more complicated. Yeah. Well,
0: I guess it's it's like, I mean... You're trying to construct this this fully grown galaxy yeah. rather than just a, like a, yeah. a, a baby which still has room to...
3: To grow to in to, the sort yeah. of normal way. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: So are you, are you saying that galaxies are complex? Yeah. <laughs>
3: Turns out when you have something like billions and trillions of stars and... Ten to the twelve solar masses worth of stuff. Things get complicated. <laughs> Who'd have thunk that? <laughs> and they're all surrounded by dwarf galaxies and globular clusters, and all this fun stuff going
0: on. And the other thing you mentioned was uh, throwing these galaxies together. So yeah. so now you've set this set up this realistic galaxy. Yeah. Um, and then you can obviously set up a couple of them uh, and set them on a collision course f- with each other. Uh, we know that Andromeda is on a collision course with the Milky Way in, uh, in some time to come. Yeah. but um, Five
3: billion years or so, <laughs> roughly speaking. Get
1: ready, people. <laughs> I know. Uh,
3: Granted, one day, by the time it hits, the sun will have eaten the earth. So, you know, so, there's other issues yeah, to deal sure. with. But,
0: but still, it's kind of nice to, to be able to learn how these galaxies interacting and then you can kind of understand how they may have interacted in the past because all most galaxies have undergone some sort of merging
3: yeah absolutely it's one of the more useful things and it's actually sort of in the history of computer simulations of galaxies this was one of the big demonstrations that uh was first done by uh fellow by the name of Tumri uh, – well, actually, the paper was Tumri and Tumri was these brothers who uh, wrote this paper. And it's, a the, paper right? it's a very
1: famous <laughs> paper, It's a very famous paper
3: in uh, computational and in simulations. Uh, I'm sure Dan might yeah. uh, kn- knows what I'm talking about. But they went in to a conference and we're showing okay the initial things and then sort of went, Oh, and here's a picture of it. Now let's just rotate, rotate. Hey, look, this looks exactly like this pair of galaxies. I think the whirlpool galaxies, which are is a famous example of two galaxies interacting. And as soon as you go, Oh, it's right there. We can make a whirlpool from these.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it's a it's an incredible like I don't know. It's it's a it's a coup for for simulations and our understanding of of gravity, essentially, yeah. and and how how the universe has evolved.
3: Yeah. And so understanding how these interacting how interactions go, it is important. You know, the time scales in astronomy are long. Very, very long. When you know, oh it's only been two hundred million years. Ah, that's we need to actually get some real time going on these things. Mm-hmm. Because the dynamical processes, it just literally takes billions of years. So, in many ways, when we study the universe, we're studying on galaxy scales. We're studying a frozen universe. And we see, as we look back in time, the further away, we see the pieces of galaxies uh, that might form into larger things, and we see what we have now. We see the big ones now, and but we don't see the, any of those things actually assemble into the current things. We have to infer that. But it's under looking at these interactions helps us to figure out what goes on and where does the gas go when you f- take a couple spiral galaxies and throw them together and how they turn into elliptical galaxies and all this sort of fun sort of things and how, oh, look, when you have this interaction, all these stars are born and all sorts of crazy other stuff goes on.
1: So what would you say is the main result of your paper? What are you most proud of?
3: So I would say the key thing is actually the tool itself you know we made a model of the Milky Way we did some tests of the uh, of the code just making sure everything's stable but the main thing is actually having this tool because like I said most of the other tools for these tailored simulations don't have gas disks built in and it gives us a whole new avenue to look at because the gas discs The gas has different physics than stars. And so we can see that. We can see it in the interactions. Uh, I've done some simulations throwing galaxies together, and you can clearly see, hey, the gas went over here and the stars went over there. That's weird. What's going on? And maybe there's something we can learn about real things from that. And another use of these tools is that we can test our observational algorithms for uh, someone like Jacinta, who actually does real observing and does the real work, not the <laughs> sit in front of a computer all day. Uh, when you look at an observation of a galaxy and uh, astronomers, we look at them in all sorts of different ways. We look at things like rotation curves, surface brightness, all, all all sorts of random fancy words. But we look at them in a lot of different ways. And then we often try to go, okay, based on these observations, what does the – actual thing look like? What, how much dark matter is there in this galaxy? Uh, when did stars form, et cetera, et cetera. And to do that, you have various algorithms and you're trying to infer something. Well, with a tailored simulation, you can then make a mock observation and then go, okay, now if I study the mock observation using the tools that are used on a real galaxy, do I get back what I actually know the thing looks like? Because the simulation, I know exactly what it looks like. And it's a very useful tool to test other tools for observations, as well as modeling real things and all this fun sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's awesome work, Nathan. Uh, just congratulations on on your latest paper. It's uh, it's always an uh, an epic effort to get that through <laughs> yeah. the publication process. <laughs> yes, it is. It takes a
3: long time, and yeah, this particular paper has taken an incredibly long time (laughs) because of how much had to be rebuilt and recoded from older versions of the code. It's basically completely new inside.
1: Well well Well, done on your
3: perseverance. yeah, Yeah, congratulations. Thank you.
0: And thank you again for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: It's really cool to see uh, to, he- or to hear uh, from nathan and nicole the the range of um, yeah. sort of where these simulations are, are useful so it's not just a it's not just one way of of doing simulations and learning about how the universe is evolving we're not just doing a massive uh box where we build the whole universe you can also build a little box with just an individual galaxy and learn quite a lot about that uh learn more detailed information about the galaxy uh, and yeah I mean it, it happens the whole way up and down. I, I know there um, there's a group here at the SAO who models individual stars. so you know
1: wow, that's a huge <laughs> range. I guess I didn't really appreciate yeah the the breadth of the scales of, of that you can simulate, and of course you can't do all of it at the same time because it, it will break your supercomputers. <laughs> we don't currently have enough power right
0: yeah uh, and, and 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 of course the physics changes very slightly too sure. so so what ex- what what is important to include at different levels is is quite different mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. I mean, maybe one day in the distant future, we will have one mm-hmm. super simulation.
1: Yeah, that would be awesome. So epic. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole new world for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's equivalent to in observational astronomy where you can, you know, take a picture of an individual nearby galaxy. Like you can look at Andromeda and you can you can see lots of details and you can see even individual, you know, supernova explosions and you can see the, the dust clouds and the... Those different components, um, or you can look at very distant galaxies. Um, for example, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, if you've ever seen that, where you can see um, many uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of galaxies, but in in far less detail. And you know, both of those ways of looking at the universe are very valuable you're finding out different information
0: yeah or you can again look at individual stars and look at their kind of chemical fingerprint and right find out where they came from and yeah. what they formed from
1: yeah it's all clues all <laughs> part of the huge puzzle <laughs> <laughs> and uh that's it for today so thanks very much for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the cosmic savannah
0: as always you can follow us on twitter facebook and now Instagram, Yay. <laughs> at, and at our website, thecosmicsavannah.com. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H, where we'll have links related to today's episode.
1: Special thanks today to Nicole Thomas and Dr. Nathan Degg for speaking with us.
0: Thanks to Mark Allnut for music production, Janis Sprink for the astrophotography, Lana Saraya for graphic design, Michal Wercek for photography and technical assistance, and Sebastian Talinski obrocki for help in post-production.
1: We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running.
0: You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah.
0: Coming up on The Cosmic Savannah
1: when the, the activity from the sun strikes the Earth's magnetic field, it can cause the Earth's magnetic field to change. When one of these big flares of coronal mass ejections causes the Earth's magnetic field to rearrange, that causes huge currents to go through the power lines that we use. And so back in 1989, it wiped out the electricity in North America for a huge portion of it in Canada and America's eastern area.